Welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere, where CEOs, leaders, and experts at building teams, companies, organizations, and amazing cultures share how to lead from anywhere in the world. I'm your co-host on the East Coast, Ginny Bianco Mathis. And I'm your co-host on the West Coast, Mitch Simon. And we invite you to join us to Team Anywhere. How do you foster confidence in a world of uncertainty? How do you create calm in the chaos? According to Robert Mixon, retired army commander, leadership expert, and author, a great leader directs his effort on the behaviors team members can do consistently to alleviate the chaos. They focus on six big intentional behaviors that quiet the storm, build trust, and empower each other so they can team anywhere. Hello and welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere. I'm your co-host on the West Coast, Mitch Simon. And on the East Coast, we have our amazing, wise, stunning co-host, Dr. Virginia Bianco. Mathis, Ginny, how are you doing this afternoon? Wow, my gosh, with that introduction, I am doing fabulously. (laughs) Fabulous. Another (laughs) word of the day. Today on the podcast, we have Robert Mixon, who has achieved over three decades of extraordinary leadership success in diverse organizations, including the United States Army, where he commanded the 7th Infantry Division and Fort Carson, Colorado, prior to his retirement in 2007. In 2014, he started his own leadership company, Level 5 Associates, and has authored several best-selling books, including Cows in the Living Room. Today, we want to discover how do you as a leader, or how do we as a leader, deal with uncertainty, especially in these difficult times, difficult environments, and on top of that, doing it remotely. So, Robert, how are you doing today? I'm well, Mitch. Thanks. And it's great to be with you and Jenny today and talk about the practical application of leadership. Great. Really excited for that. So our first question is, what has surprised you personally over the last two years? I think what surprised me the most over the last two years has been how different organizations and teams have chosen to deal with the level of anxiety that, you know, the world now lives in. We live in the anxiety of COVID, of social upheaval, of war, of inflation, there's a whole litany of challenges that uh, I think leaders in different organizations are grappling with to find solutions that work. Yeah. When you put it out there, it's a lot. It really is a lot right now. And on top of that, for many companies, at least I know that Ginny and I, I'm sure you work with Robert, they are like busier than ever before. Very true. Many of them are facing demands for their products and services that are unprecedented. So on a lighter note, or on a great note, you have to tell us, Cows in the Living Room, what is that book about? It's a book about strategic planning. Of course uh, it is. (laughs) Yeah. And so we were going to name it Outcomes-Based Strategic Planning. But our partners in life decided that that was really a bad idea because nobody was going to read a book with that title. That's right. So they helped us discover an old fable about a farmer who was a dairy farmer, and it's an inside cover of the book talks about it, but he went to a village to find a mate, a spouse, and he discovered the young person, the young lady who he had brought back to the farm, and they began their lives together, and then it came to be the fall, 
And uh, she came home one day and all the dairy cows uh, were in the living room. And she had a defining moment where it was time for her to examine her relationship. But she decided that the relationship was worth the price of the cows there. So she went on with her life. And then about two months later, one of her best friends came to visit and walked in the door of shock and awe and said, well, what are all these cows doing in the living room? And she replied, what cows? And essentially, the book is about how we become accustomed to mm-hmm. having cows in our living room. And without really thinking about strategic plans that work with measurable objectives in mind, we can end up with just cows being in the room forever, and we never decide to eat the barn. Yep. So that's why the book title unfolded. I love it. That is great. And so when you're doing strategic planning, you just basically sit down and say, okay, where are the cows? Who are the cows? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Let's figure out how to heat the barn. That's right. Okay. So now (laughs) we'll ask you the next title, which I think is pretty exciting. But after this, not as exciting as Cows in the Living Room, you wrote, who saw this coming? Now, what do we do? So when did you write that? And what was that book about? Well, that one came out shortly after the pandemic a couple of years ago. And I will take an opportunity for a shameless promotion in between because I wrote another book in 2017 called We're All In, The Journey to a World-Class Culture. So essentially, there are three in the queue, all of them short books, which I'm proud of. I would say Who Saw This Coming was an e-book that came out of a series of webinars that I conducted as people began to grapple with the challenges of a world that was undergoing revolutionary change not evolutionary change. And what they were struggling with was, how do I cope as a leader? What are my coping mechanisms? Do I go back to the same old things that I've always done or do I adapt? And my thesis here is that the big six principles are highly adaptive. It's up to us as leaders to figure that out, but the principles are enduring. And so that's what, who saw this coming is about. When you're in times of great uncertainty, I think you can go back to those bedrock principles and find some solace in the fact that they are proven, they work. It's up to us to apply them in an imaginative way. I thought that was very insightful, the distinction between how do I cope or how do I adapt? What does it look like a leader who is coping versus a leader who's adapting? I think coping is a methodology of getting by. You know, it's surviving. Mm -hmm. And so to me, adapting is a more deliberate, thoughtful approach where, you know, you are deliberately addressing the needs of your team as a servant leader, and you're meeting those needs or exceeding those needs because you're anticipating what they are, and you're listening for feedback, you're assessing that, you're communicating in a meaningful way, and people know that you care. And I know you're going to get into this big six principles with the key word adapt, you go back to those principles and you have to perhaps think more creatively and innovatively about them, but not throw them out. Correct. That's exactly my thesis. Right. Right. So let's talk about the big six and then let's dig into a few of them for our audience. So what are the big six and how did you come up with the big six? Okay, Mitch. Well, I mean, first of all, the big six I learned through screwing them up. I don't think I've ever had an original thought, but you know, I've got some scar tissue from you know not applying these principles well. They evolved over time, and the first one is called set the azimuth. And a lot of people don't know what an azimuth is, but essentially an azimuth is the cardinal direction of your team, of your organization. It has four components. The mission, who are we? What do we do? Why do we do it? 
our intent, it has more clarity than vision. Intent is what's our end state? What does success look like? Right. Usually in a three to five year time frame. What are the key tasks that we must perform for that end state to come to life? And then what's our purpose? You know, as folks like Simon Sinek have talked about, what's our why? Why are we doing this? So you have a mission, then you have the intent. The third component of the azimuth is what are our values? What do we believe in? And we have to express those values together, I think, in writing, because people make assumptions of what they are otherwise and what they mean. And the fourth component of the azimuth is what's our culture? What are the behaviors that we expect people to represent to bring our azimuth to life? to bring our values to life. So that's what set the azimuth means as the first of the big six. The second of the big six is listen. As my mom said, you know, she told me early in my life, you know, Robert, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> did I pay attention to her? Nope, I did not. Yeah. And occasionally she reminds me that I have needed a whole lot of constant you know, nurturing in listening. And so has my spouse of 48 years, Ruthie. So listening is about actively seeking to understand. You know, Stephen Covey said, are you listening with the intent to understand or are you listening with the intent to reply? 90% of us as leaders are in the latter category. What's the classic example of that? Interrupting people. When you interrupt people, you demonstrate that you're not listening with the intent to understand. In the environment that our leaders are in now, we've got to listen with the intent to understand. What's one of the best tools to do that? Well, I like the two-second rule. Before you respond to anyone, you wait two seconds. Now, some people have asked me, do I count out loud? Well, I don't really recommend that. You know, I, I don't know, Jenny. I, it would be a little awkward. No, that that is the one-two guy. Yeah, but in any case, that active listening with the two-second rule gives you the opportunity to be thoughtful in your response and to demonstrate respect for the person who's speaking with you. The third principle is trust and empower. Empowerment is the embodiment of trust. And I think other famous people have said trust is the glue of life. How do you bring that to life? I think you demonstrate trust by actively empowering others to lead, to make decisions. I like the tool called the decision tree, where, in fact, I write a blog every other week. One of the blogs was called, is your decision tree a fir tree or a palm tree? Hmm. organizations that's a palm tree because all decisions are made at the top. The healthiest cultures are fir trees where most of the decisions are made by the people who have boots on the ground that are doing real work. But you've got to spell out what the decision tree looks like or again, people won't know. And that uncertainty and anxiety is bad enough in the world with all the compounding factors we have underway without us adding fuel to the fire by creating more uncertainty. Setting your azimuth reduces your uncertainty. Listening to the intent to understand reduces the uncertainty in your culture. Having a decision tree reduces the uncertainty in your culture. That builds confidence. People want to belong to an organization they believe in with leaders who trust and empower them. The fourth principle is do the right thing when no one's looking. We used to say at the Pentagon, well, that briefs well. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but the actual execution of doing the right thing when no one's looking is much more difficult. And we can sort of think that people don't know, see what we're doing or what we're doing all the time. But I think they really do. They're just developing assessments of our behaviors in different ways. For example, what type of discipline do we have in our email and text messaging? If you're going to send emails and text to people all hours of the day and night, 
and expect them to respond, I don't think you're doing the right thing. I don't think you're treating people with dignity and respect. And I think you're creating a culture where people do not have a life. They have <laughs> what you define as their life. And so doing the right thing has a lot to do with respecting others in a mm -hmm. deliberate way, whether they're in virtual or live. It's really all about thinking of them, putting yourself in their shoes. The fifth principle is when in charge, take charge. You know, everybody thinks it's being loud and profane. I believe it's exactly the opposite. Today, more than ever, we need to be the calm and the chaos. We need to demonstrate tactical patience. The first report is almost always wrong. You've got to have the patience to process that. You also have to learn to be a good, bad news taker. There's a pile of dead messengers outside your doorway because anybody <laughs> brings you bad news is shot on sight. Then pretty right. soon nobody's going to tell you anything until the building is burning and all the fire trucks show up. And they go, well, well I guess we got a problem here. You got to be a good, bad news taker. That doesn't mean, you know, you go ballistic and act crazy. It means you can process the information in a thoughtful, rational way. That's the leader people want to be around. Right. One of my favorite examples of that is the two questions you can ask when something goes wrong. The first question is, okay, what were you thinking, Robert? The second question is, so Robert, what did we learn? The negativity of the first and the positivity of the second are classic examples of what not to do and what to do in order to be in charge. And we need to teach our leaders how to be the calm and the chaos and support them when they do. The sixth principle is balance the personal and professional. Everybody thinks it's about time management. That's absolutely not true. We can't manage time. Time is finite. What we can do is we take more ownership of the time we have available. Yeah, I think balance is about four levels of energy. The physical, the mental, the spiritual, and the emotional. We need to assess our own battery charge levels in those four areas. And we need to do it routinely and help others assess theirs and look for warning signs when other people are out of balance, you know, when they really are going off the grid. And it's because of their energy levels and not how many hours they're spending in the office or on the phone or on the Zoom. And I believe by being thoughtful in assessing those energy levels in ourselves and in others, we can create a healthier culture where people know we care. And I believe the self-assessment is the most powerful tool that I've used, or the daily audit is what I call it. Yes. Where I spend 10 to 15 minutes a day completely alone with no electronics. I'm not driving down the interstate making new friends. I am alone. And I am asking myself a couple of key questions. The first one is, what did I plan to do today to grow leaders? Secondly, what did I actually do? And then the final one is, okay, what am I going to do tomorrow to move the needle in demonstrating to people that I care about them as leaders and I'm paying attention to their energy levels and the sense of balance we have in our organization? So those are the big six as an overview, Mitch and Jenny, and I'll certainly entertain your questions from there. Wow, that was really great. You're really answering the question, how to create the calm and the chaos. So these six principles are basically saying, yeah, the world out there is going to do what the world does. It seems to be on hyperdrive right now. We can't really change what the world's doing, but we certainly can change ourselves and our teams. And by taking on these six, the big six, we can certainly you know, help ourselves and at the same time, really forwarding the leadership below us. Um, Absolutely. Especially, especially it's just, a, I think it was our last podcast where we were talking about energy. Energy, right. Ahmed. And 
for her as well was being attentive to the energy of yourself and the energy of your others. And I think you've really shared that as well. What I'd love to do is dive into a few of these, just specifically in the area of set the azimuth, how do we as teams define behaviors? How does that conversation look, sound, feel like such that we can all get on the same page, especially because we are all in different places? You know, so which yep. behaviors are we actually talking about? I like to approach setting the azimuth as a team exercise, as a team workshop, where the leadership team gathers and we collectively address each of the four elements of the azimuth. For example, everybody thinks they know what our mission is, but very few people really do because it's not very often specified. Really, the mission is who are we, what do we do, and why do we do it in one or two sentences. And when you build it as a team or refine it as a team, then we own it. If you don't do that together, then it's Robert's good idea. It's not, Jenny don't own this mission. You know, they're on the team, but, you know, I wrote the mission. We didn't write it. Same is true of the intent. You've got to develop the intent together. You know, what's our end state? What does success look like? And what are those key tasks we have to perform in order for the end state to come to life? And really what happens in a lot of organizations is that the intent development, mission intent becomes a strategic plan of its own right. We go to cows in the living room because they realize that there are cows out there. And, you know, now that we've identified them as a team, well, we, what are we going to do about it? You know, what's our roadmap? Let's build a roadmap to get there. The third element of the workshop is our values and listing our values and defining them. So let me give you an example of a value that a lot of organizations have, and that is respect. Respect is a belief. Some people define belief of respect in a number of different ways. One of the ways that I've heard is respect is having regard for oneself and others. Okay, that's a definition. It's not the definition. So I'll challenge a team in a workshop and say, okay, how are you going to bring a behavior to life that demonstrates that value? Yeah. Well, we're going to treat people with dignity and respect. That's not measurable. There's the word I was waiting for, yeah, measurable. You know, that which is measured gets done. Yes. So I said, what's an example of a behavior? And usually we'll thrash around a while. And I'll say, okay, well, how about this one? Value for having regard for oneself and others. Then our behavior would be, we do things on time. I don't know how many hours of my life are gone. Probably 7,000, 10,000 that I spent in worthless bullshit meetings. Mm -hmm. Meetings without agendas. Meetings that didn't start on time. Meetings that didn't end on time. How am I doing so far? You know, I think That's all it. of us can envision, right. right? Those nightmares we've lived through. If you're going to demonstrate respect to people, yeah, I think you need to develop meeting discipline. Okay. Robert, can you share with us how you would actually translate a value into a behavior? Yeah, I can. One of the stories that resonates with me is about an organization that identified respect as one of their values. And they defined respect as having regard for oneself and others. And I said, okay, that's great. We define that value. How do we translate that value into a cultural behavior, into action? And we struggle with it for a while. And then I suggested to them that, why don't we state here that we do things on time as a manifestation of respect so that the belief comes to life in a measurable, tangible way? Because as I mentioned earlier, that which is measured gets done. So this was an example where the light bulb sort of went on. They all went, okay, so with all of our other values, we have to translate those values into some actionable behaviors that we expect everyone to demonstrate, to manifest right. in the organization. And that's where you create alignment. And, you know, the azimuth process creates alignment. And if you do it as a team and you come out of it with that mission, intent, values, culture, and we all own it. 
And that's where I think the true value of deliberate leadership in the big six resides. Great. I love that example. I had heard once I had been in a leadership institute and the gentleman who was the head of culture at a major company basically said the same thing. He says, if I can measure a great culture based on whether the meetings start on time, because that is definitely demonstrating a culture of respect. We have respect for everybody's time because that's the great equalizer because we might have different positions and different live in different socioeconomic levels. We all have 24 hours in the day. Yeah. As I was talking about balance, you know, we can't manage time. Time is finite. What we can do is take more ownership of the time that's available. And the way we take more ownership of the time that's available is by having meeting discipline. So I want to dive into listening because we talked about trust and empowerment. And when we spoke earlier, we talked about power questions. Can you share with us some power questions in the area of trust and empower? I like to use questions or question architecture to guide conversations. And I believe that what they do is they, they help you connect with people in a more meaningful way. And I like to use power questions. You know, how's it going is not a power question. Or what's up? Well, a power question is one that's going to elicit some information you can use as a leader. One of the examples I like is, what's the biggest challenge you're facing this week and why? That's going to generate some information. The person you ask that question to is going to give you some information. You may not want to hear it. You may not like hearing it, but it's going to be usable information as a leader. And if we're going to take more ownership of our time, we need to ask more focused power questions to get the information we need to provide resources and make decisions in time. Another power question I like to use is, what are your dreams? What do you want to be when you grow up? I find a lot of people have been around each other for years and never asked that question. And so they really don't know what people's dreams are. And if you don't know what those dreams are, how do you help people develop? How do you help nurture them as individuals and as leaders so they can grow and they feel as though you are caring? You have a stake. Robert and Mitch, I'd like to add a story that still blows me over. There is a president of a company that I work with, and he's still at the stage where he can interview everybody who comes on. And here's his main question in the interviews before hiring is, what is your destiny? And he says he gets all sorts of incredible answers. And his favorite story is the person who said, well, I want to buy a fishing boat and lead teams of fishermen across, you know, the Chesapeake Bay. To oh, good. It. So then he asks, well, then why should I hire you? Well, he said his answer was equally powerful, saying, well, here's my plan. I'm going to work using my expertise and technology, doing these kinds of things to add this kind of value to the world while also saving this kind of money so that by the year, blah, blah. Anyway, he said, okay, you're hired. Because just like you said, you're connecting. Right. That's a good story, Jenny. Yeah. And it gets at this whole thing of questions. Yeah, the question architecture to me was one of the tools that really has served me well. And I learned, of course, like I said, I haven't had the original thoughts. I learned this from other people who taught me the value of asking power questions. And then you know, <laughs> someone who asked me questions then attended to my answer. So, you know, the follow-up is important here. Just asking people power questions is only part one. That's the second right. part is following up. 
And I believe that we, that's a shortfall many of us have. As we finally get to the power questions, then we don't follow up. So people say, well, she didn't really want to know the answer to that question because there was no follow-up to it. That I've been putting 10 stars by that yeah. one. That demonstrates true listening, true caring. You had another question, which you shared with me before the podcast, which is powerful, which is what is one resource that if you had right now, you could accomplish what you want to accomplish? Yep. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me there. Yeah. You know, I have a list of about half a dozen that I use and I encourage leaders to develop their own. And right. then, you know, they'll evolve over time. You'll learn from conversations with others, but the true conversation occurs in one-on-one meetings, not one-on-fifty, are essential to this development. Yeah, we're coming, we're learning, all of your six steps are, you know, were created obviously before the pandemic. It's just that they're becoming more important now. Okay, my next question, which I love, is, you know, one of your principles is do the right thing when no one is looking. And I say, well, no one is looking right now. I mean, no one can see me in my house except when I'm on camera. So how do you honor and follow, do the right thing when no one is looking, when, when actually no one ever is looking in today's virtual world. Well, I alluded to earlier about consideration and showing consideration for others in your text and email traffic. Mm-hmm. What time of day you send those out and you expect responses. To me, that's doing the right thing because it's consideration of others. I know you all are probably, probably do the same thing I do, and you always drive the speed limit no matter where you are. Always. But, <laughs> yeah. Some of my friends believe that the speed limit is a guide. It's a suggestion, you know. Yes, it is. is. I mean, so doing the right thing in terms of procedurally is one part of the big six leadership model. But the other part of it is doing the right thing from a consideration standpoint. You're putting yourselves in the shoes of others. If you're going to apply the two-second rule and you're going to think before you respond as a listener, I believe that also applies to think before you write or send or transmit Yes. And, and doing yes. the right thing, I believe consideration of others is a fundamental. People are watching. They are listening. They are paying attention. And the timing of your messages is one way that they're watching. They're looking. I think it's lost on some leaders that you don't have to be standing in front of them. Or you right. don't have to be the car ahead of them going 95 on 95. Right. You know, uh, you can be setting a standard of expectation and behavior that is not considerate of yes. others. And the timeline, the time we're in. I think consideration is more powerful than ever. Great. Next principle is when in charge, take charge. Where are places where you're seeing team members take charge, which actually helps the rest of the team and helps the rest of the company? Because again, what I've been promoting in some of my courses is, so you've been at work now, this is your new job. You've been here for two and a half minutes. You need to take charge. And they're like, I don't know anything yet. Yet I'm finding there are ways for new people in the company, one year, two years, three years, not in a management position where they actually are taking charge and it's really helping the rest of the team out. I think there are a lot of examples out there, Mitch, as you allude to, where we can take charge and more junior people can take charge. And the really taking charge, I think, is also in the realm of being an influencer. Yes. You know, when you're in charge, you are accepting a role as being a member of a team with a mission, right? A mission, intent, values, culture. It's the greater good of the organization. So if I have a capability that I can contribute to an integrated process team to tackle a specific project, I can offer myself to be part of that team. And I don't necessarily have to feel like I'm taking on a burden. It's going to be an opportunity, not a burden. And when you demonstrate that positivity in the team and you accept or even take on 
some additional tasks that you may have some skills in for that greater good to facilitate that mission accomplishment. It sends a signal to everybody that you're all in. You're buying in. And that's being in charge to me. That's a demonstration of being in charge. The final question is balancing personal and professional. Is that up to each person now to do balancing? Can a leader help influence that? Because, you know, I'm working with a company where they constantly say, we need to take breaks. We're not taking breaks. We know we need to take breaks. We're not doing them. How do you encourage that either from a team member position or a team leader position? Well, it used to be, and some companies are returning to that physical presence requirement in their companies. I think Elon Musk is one of them, but they're bringing people back in. It used to be how, you know, what cars were in the parking lot. And if your car needed to be in the parking lot until your boss left, and then you could leave. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, to me, balance, it's, the framework has changed significantly. Now we have to demonstrate a sense of balance. And not only a regard for others that we've talked about in earlier examples, because all the big six are interconnected. You yes. can't cherry pick them apart. Right. I, I use a gear analogy when I put it up on a screen that they're all interconnected. The concept of balance is really nurturing those levels of energy. The four levels I talked about, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. You can assess your own. I talked about the daily audit as one tool. You can help others assess theirs and you can assess them collectively. There is a balance survey that I've created where you ask people to do a self-examination of their energy levels in those four areas. And then where could they improve? I think when you do that, you're demonstrating to people that you care enough about this process of balance and energy that you're going to conduct a collective survey process to have them assess theirs. And you're going to discuss ways that we can move the needle collectively as well as individually. And that consensus, I call it discovery learning. You know, the team discovers that we have energy levels that need to be nurtured in ourselves and in others. And we actively work to do that. Not episodically, we do it systemically. Well, great. Thank you. So last question is, where can we find you? Where can we find your books? How can we interact with you so we can learn more about the six steps? Sure. My website is www.level5associates.com. There I have all the blogs that I've produced and some podcasts that I've done, the products and services that I offer. And I encourage people to go there and take a look and see if it's valuable to you. Great. All right. Well, thank you, Robert. This has been so informative. I really got a good understanding about how to calm the chaos, how to be quiet in the storm, and how a leader can provide as much certainty as in such a world of uncertainty. So thank you so much, Robert. Thank you, Jenny, my amazing co-host. Thank you, our audience. And if you've enjoyed this episode, which we have, please share this with your friends, your colleagues, your family, and we'll see you next time on our next episode of Team Anywhere.